one of our members, one of our students, Ben Flood. A common thought motif in stories is this idea of humiliation before exaltation, or this embarrassing defeat before victory. You can see this story structure in all types of tales and legends that you've heard, um, whether you've watched them or read them in a book or listened to them. We, we see this in stories all over the place. A pretty good contemporary example of this would be in Star Wars. We see a confident Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back with this embarrassing defeat against Darth Vader, completely humiliated, and it's dark. There's no chance of him winning. But then in Return of the Jedi, this is flip. Luke Skywalker's the one that saves the day. He's able to be the hero that the galaxy needed. And he's exalted as a Jedi. An even better example of this is in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In this story, Aslan, this beautiful, gorgeous lion, is taken by the White Witch, and he has his mane shaved, and then he's killed in this humiliating death. All these creatures are making fun of him while it happens. And we next see Aslan exalted as the true ruler of Narnia. He comes and he defeats this evil that's been afflicting Narnia. He is at last victorious, and you see him in all of his glory, fully exalted. So this reoccurring plot at first seems pretty far removed from the gospel. There's never any real question that Christ was going to be the victor over sin and death. But this reoccurring story, it's the story that matters. And it matters because, as C.S. Lewis puts it, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others. But this tremendous difference, the difference that it really happened. The story of victory coming through humiliation is so strong because it's an echo of the gospel. We see Jesus Christ in his death, we see an even deeper humiliation as he's tried as a criminal, mocked, beaten, and then hung on a cross, only for him to later be resurrected and exalted in glory. Now this story echoes in fiction, but God also tells us this story in true examples. In the Bible, we see Joseph and he's left by his brothers, but because of that, He's able to accumulate all this power and save people later on when there's a famine, including the brothers. See, God uses these stories of individuals and these legends and myths to point us to a true story of the humiliated hero, Jesus Christ, whose story of humiliation and then exaltation is the continue what Pastor Sean started with for us on Friday. He talked about the humiliation of Christ. So today I'm going to talk about the exaltation of Christ. But to those who weren't here on Friday, I'm going to read chapter 2, 1 through 11. So if you would follow along with me, we have the words on the screen or to a Bible or a, an app of some sort on your phone. To follow along. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, humil in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, above, name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we are again come to you humbly, Lord, seeking, Lord, to be encouraged by your word. Lord, we are all in situations in our lives, Lord, where we are desperate for encouragement. We look for it from the world, we look from it from other people, but yet we are always so empty, Lord, of encouragement. Lord, may you give us encouragement through your word. <coughs> may you teach us, may you guide us, may you instruct us, Lord. For some of us, maybe we need to be convicted of our sins. Maybe we need to be uh, led to repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that you would do so. For others, Lord, they need encouragement, Lord. They need to feel, Lord, that they are not alone. Lord, I pray that you would do that. Lord, we pray for other brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for our, our friends in, uh, in Switzerland who have a church there and in and, and, uh, and Lord. We pray for them. We pray for the Smiths. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, encourage them today. Lord, they are in a very difficult place of ministry. Lord, there's very little encouragement. Lord, Lord may you help us as, as a church redeemer. I know that we're not huge. I know we don't have a ton of resources, Lord. But may you use us to encourage Lyle and Chris. Lord, we praise you. We love you. Amen. So, um, I was a 90s kid, right? Like, I was born in the 80s. Like, I was born in 83, but, like, I grew up in the 90s, right? So, I was a big fan of, like, Saved by the Bell. Uh, watched it all the time. And I was a huge fan of Michael Jordan. Like, I had the, the jump man all over. I mean, I had shirts and hats. And, man, when I was a kid, when I played basketball, I had the Jordan shoes. Uh, my parents, God love them, spent way too much money on basketball shoes. And I don't know how much they cost, because I was a kid. Like, things don't cost money, right? You just, you want something, and maybe somebody can do it for you, right? There's very little transaction of you having to work, earn money, and pay for something. You just, hey, I want that, because Jordan wears them. And the parents may give them to you, and that's kind of how it works for me. I also had grandparents that, that spoiled me and, and would buy all kinds of stuff for me. Because I was the oldest for very many years. And so I loved Jordan. And so in 91, I don't know if you remember the, the Gatorade commercial, right? Uh, Be Like Mike. This is like the big commercial that had that catchy tune, right? Be Like Mike. And he would be like playing around with kids. And he would, they would show, uh, they would show uh, uh, action footage of him like dunking, do all kinds of other stuff in the NBA. And the, the tagline at the end of the commercial was Be Like Mike drink Gatorade. Almost basically saying, if you drink Gatorade, you could be like Mike, right? And as a kid, man, I ate that up. I drank Gatorade, because if I drank Gatorade, that means I could be like Mike. 
So when I played basketball as a kid, I would stick my tongue out like Jordan did. Like, but I would make a layup, and I wouldn't always make the layup, obviously. But you always look cool if you had your tongue sticking out when you were playing. And uh, so, I mean, I I, ate all, I was in awe of Michael Jordan, man. And I, my last memory of Jordan was when he hit that jump shot against the Utah Jazz. I think it was like 97, 98, and he hit that shot. It was like the most beautiful shot in the history of basketball. The way that it went in the goal, and it was just like, I was in awe of him as a kid. Like, he was a man who could do no, nothing wrong. He did miracles on the basketball court. And it was almost like he was a god figure to boys like me, right? I mean, what he did on the basketball court was unbelievable. My dad couldn't do that, right? My, uh, any other men in my life couldn't shoot or dunk like he did. To many, Jordan was a god who did unbelievable things on the basketball court. Dunk like him, shoot like him. That's what we wanted, man. We wanted to play basketball like Michael Jordan. Hoping, man, we could be as tall as Jordan and be able to jump as, as high as Jordan did and be able to play basketball like he did. The problem, though, with the whole Gatorade commercial, obviously, the problem with Michael Jordan is, is that Michael Jordan can never make us like himself, right? Even if I drank Gatorade, even if I wore the shoes, I was never going to jump like him or shoot like him, right? I wasn't going to somehow grow to 6'6 six, six and, and be able to jump like he did and have hands so big that he could literally palm the ball and do all kinds of crazy things with it. Just because I drank Gatorade or wore the shoes wasn't going to make me like him, even if I wanted to be like him. He lacked the power to transform people into his likeness. Even though the commercial says, be like Mike, drink Gatorade, just because you drink Gatorade doesn't make you like him in any way. So what does that have to do with Christ's resurrection? What does that have to do with Philippians chapter 2? Well, let me present a little context here. Really, this section, I have to be honest, and when you read the Bible, the chapter breaks don't do you don't do don't help you out very well. But a lot of times it is is that when you get to chapter two of like Philippians, you don't you ignore the first chapter, right? Like okay, there's chapter one as if it's a different book altogether. Then there's chapter two, which is like a totally different book altogether. But to be honest, you know, Paul wrote this as a letter, so they all flow together. Every statement, every word flows into each other. So really, chapter two starts in one twenty-seven. He says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I, whether I come or see you or am or absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in the one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he, he is concerned for the church of Philippi that they would live in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. They would stand firm in one spirit that would be united together as they are this little body of believers in this huge Roman Empire, this world that wants to crush them, he tells them to stand fast, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, to be united. Then he says to be humble, to count others more important than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. In humility, count others more significant, significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 helps us get to chapter 6. Without 5, we're kind of like, okay, uh, it talks about humility and counting others more important than yourselves, but then how, he just jumps to this hill, where he jumps to this, 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 this description of Christ Jesus and his humility and his exaltation, but verse 5 is the bridge to verse 6 through 11. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus is presented as the ultimate model for Christian behavior and action, the supreme example of humility and self-sacrificing service. Jesus is set up as this example, this exemplary model of how to live a life of humility, how to live a life that puts others more important than yourself. The problem with that, and I, that is true, the problem is verse 9 through 11. Because to be honest with you, we cannot imitate Jesus' exaltation, right? We can't go out, kill ourselves, and expect that God's going to raise us from the dead. Or go out, let someone else kill us, and hope that God raises us from the dead, and then sits us on the right hand of the Father. Like, we can't imitate that action. So what are we supposed to do with those verses? They are not items that we can imitate. The verses have no relevance to the exhortation of humility. They refer to God, the Father's exaltation of Christ, to the place of highest honor. Here's the point. Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So that passage in Luke helps us understand what Paul's talking about here, that Jesus humbled himself and then was exalted. We are then called to humble ourselves, but others before ourselves, and then we will be exalted. Exaltation through humiliation. Christ takes on a body of humiliation and then is exalted so that our bodies of humiliation will be changed and conformed to his glorious state. Let me read Philippians 3, 20-21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the main idea is that the Father exalts the Son's obedience and humiliation, and the Son then exalts his church into his likeness. So humiliation leads to exaltation. So point number one, the Son obeyed the Father through humiliation. So I'm going to somewhat review what Pastor Sean preached on Friday, just to help some of y'all who weren't here on Friday, and help present some context on how Jesus is then led into this exaltation. <coughs> So the Son obeyed the Father through humiliation. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus did not become God and responds or then after he rose from the dead. Jesus is God. And Pastor Sean talked about that a lot. He is God. John 1.1, he was in the beginning with God. He is God. He was God before he was incarnate, before he was put on the cross, and before he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. That's something he always has been. But Jesus did not exploit his nature and privilege independent of his Father's will. Jesus is God. He comes to earth. He could have done whatever he wanted, theoretically, because he is God. But he did not exploit his privilege. He did not exploit his advantage. He did not exploit his nature. He didn't do anything independent of his Father's will. His Father's will was for him to come, to live, to take on flesh, to live amongst us, and to die... That was his father's will, and that's what he did. Unfortunately, Adam, the first man, did not do that, did he? He was created, he was put in the garden, what did he do? He asserted himself independently of God and fell. Christ did not do that. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, 
even though they were created in the image of God, they wanted to be like God. That was the great temptation. That was the sin. And they took of the apple to be independent of God, to assert themselves. Christ did not do that, did he? To be Lord in his own right and independently of God, his maker, was not something Christ followed. Christ was completely and fully obedient to the will of his Father, even though he is God and has the power to do as he pleases. He chose not to do that, but to be completely and fully obedient to the will of his Father. Taking on the form of a servant, emptying himself of his privileges, he doesn't exercise any pre-existing advantage that he has. He's still God. He didn't, didn't remove his divinity by any means when he became man, when he took on the form of a servant, when he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. But he didn't exercise any of his pre-existing advantages. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is the example of humility, the example of self-sacrificing. He is a model of these things. You know, when I was a kid, I loved model airplanes and model cars. I would go into Hobby Lobby <coughs> with my mom, and I would run away from her, and I'd go to the model section, and I would just look, because I was obsessed with airplanes. I loved fighter jets. I, my, my grandfather would take me to air shows. He took me to an aircraft carrier when I was a kid. I loved planes. I loved uh, F-14s. I loved, I loved everything about planes, how fast they flew, how loud they were. I liked cars. I liked how fast they were. My dad used to watch NASCAR, and I'd watch it with him. To me, all my dad's really boring, but he would watch that with my dad. Watch fast cars and things like that. Models, like they took. You could go to the model section, even though you didn't have a Lamborghini or have a, a, a jet, you could have a model, right? It looked kind of like it, looked similar to it. Jesus is the model of humility, he is the model of self sacrificing. The cross is the model of humility. When we think of humility, we look to the cross as the, as the is exemplary model of humility. Only God can choose to be obedient to death. Think of that uh, for a second. Jesus is the only human on the planet throughout history who actually chose death. We are, we are sentenced to death, right? The wages of sin is death. There's nothing, there's no way around it. We are sentenced to death. Jesus was not sentenced to death. <coughs> he never sinned. But yet he was obedient so fully to his Father that he... Was obedient to his father even to the point of death. His love for his father is without blemish. His obedience to his father is perfect. The incarnation, the life and death of Christ, was the was the, uh, the, the 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 expression of his obedience to his father. Obedient to the point that he does not even invoke his own privileges so that his father's will would be complete. One of the most things that I probably regret in my life is when I disappointed or disobeyed my dad. Like, I can remember the times when I did something, like, willingly against his will. And I still remember that and regret that I ever did because it disappointed him, right? My respect for my father was so great that when I disappointed him or did something in disobedience to him, when he looked at me, like, that, I remember that. Christ was complete in his obedience to his father. Never disappointing, never failing. He was completely obedient to him. He never desired to be independent of his father in any way. Never trying to assert himself as separate or different. He was completely obedient to his father. And the response of that is his exaltation. So point number two, the father honored the son's humiliation. The, the father honored the son's humiliation. What does it say here in Philippians 2? This is a great word. 
We're therefore in verse 9. So Jesus' obedience to his Father, his humiliation, his humbleness to the cross, not using his privileges to set any type of independence or try to assert himself or to earn something outside his Father's will. God, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. The entire passage is about Jesus, and then now it talks about God the Father. There's a change here. God the Father is the one exalting Jesus. Jesus is not exalting himself. Because that's outside the will of his Father. Christ is then honored highly for his obedience and his humiliation. Christ did not exploit his divine nature. He became a man. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even a humiliating death on the cross, was obedient to the Father in every way. You think about the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think we talk about that episode of Jesus' life enough. Probably around this time of, time of year. But that is where Jesus, you saw Jesus struggling in his obedience, right? I mean, Jesus is God. God cannot sin. But you see in the emotions of Jesus that he struggled. He was bleeding. He was crying. He was praying. That he asked the Father, if there would be any other way. This cup would pass for me. But that your will be done, but my will be done. You, if you ever think that it's hard to obey, Jesus understands how hard it is to obey. But he obeyed. And by obeying, by obeying God to the point of death, even death on the cross, he is highly exalted. The word there, highly exalted, is where we get like hyper speed, hyper car, hyper, anything the highest you can think of. That's how he is exalted. The Father responds to Christ's obedience by raising him from the dead. We know from Acts chapter 2, uh, this, is, this is Peter in the, the sermon at Pentecost, where he talks about Christ's resurrection. He says in verse 23 that Jesus was delivered over to, to be crucified and killed by the hands of all this man, but then God raised him, losing the, losing the pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is my right hand that I may not be, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You have made, made me full of gladness with your <coughs> presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the uh, patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. That passage is about Christ. Christ was raised from the dead. He was then risen to the to uh, given the name above all things. He was given all power and all dominion, all rule. It says in Revelation 1:5 that the Lamb was worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessings. This is a prize of his obedience. Deprived of his humiliation is the lamb who was slain is given all the power and all the authority and all the glory and all the blessings and all the honor and all the might and all the wisdom and all the love. Everything is given to Christ. It doesn't end there. Jesus is just going to chair up in the heavens and gets a, gets a scepter and a crown. He gets far more than that. It says that he's given a name above all names. What does that mean? What, what name is he given? What, what's bigger than Jesus? Jesus is a, is a name that, that revokes salvation for God's people. Christ is a name that resounds as the Messiah, the anointed, the one promised by God in the Old Testament to bring salvation and redemption to his people. What other name does Jesus not have? And it's the name of Lord. 
The name that God gave Moses in Exodus 3, that you shall be, I am the I am, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, that's the name given to Jesus. He is the name above all names. He's given the name of Yahweh, Lord. There is no other higher name than that. That's the name that Christ has. He gives him the personal name of God is given to Christ. He is God in every way. Isaiah 42, verse 8. He's not just simply a man who rose from the dead. This is a guy who's given the name of Lord, the personal name of God. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. I am the Lord, is Jesus' name. He is the Lord. He is God in every way. They mocked Jesus when he told them he knew the Father is to know me. Now he has been exalted and given the name of Yahweh Lord. His path to lordship was not as Satan tried to tempt him, right? Remember in Luke 4 it says, he says, you know, worship me and I shall give you all the kingdoms of the world. I shall give you all the authority and glory. If you would just worship me and what a God Christ said, no one should worship a God alone. That's not his path to lordship. His path was through the cross, obedience to his Father. No self-asserting path to glory outside of God's exaltation. Christ did not independently elevate himself outside the Father, the will of God. He was obedient and God responded with exaltation. Obedience is the straight path to exaltation. Obedience. Is the straight path to exaltation. There is no other way around. There is no shortcut. There is no self-assertion. There is no independent making. It's only through the straight path of obedience. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. All the qualities of God are in Christ. He is honored with the Father's name. All will honor and acknowledge his rule and his power on earth and heaven and under the earth. And this is not some verse to be used that all will believe, that all will come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, all will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, all will be saviors, all will be going, everyone will be taken to heaven. It talks about the universal homage and honor that Christ deserves. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be acknowledgement of that fact. He is the Lord. Even if you don't believe that, even if you think that's not true, He is Lord. You will acknowledge that one day. The problem with this, go over to uh, Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By, by myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Okay? Similar verses. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteous and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, shall be justified and shall glory. This passage is telling us that all will acknowledge Christ as Lord, but those who do not worship him and are indignant to that fact will be put to shame. You will acknowledge the truth. One day, but if you don't acknowledge that and you are indignant to it, you will be put to shame. 
You can either openly confess gladly with joy, or you can be indignant and be put to shame. How will you acknowledge him with gladness today or indignation which leads to shame? All of this is to the glory of God the Father. This is the divine plan of God. This is to show God's truthfulness, his, his, his promises to Israel that Christ, the Messiah, will come and redeem his people. This is God's plan that the Gentiles and those who are non-Jewish will be brought into the fold through Christ. That all will praise his name. This is the glory to God's name. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the church, the sanctification of believers, the glorification of believers in the future. That's also the glory of God. Because when God is exposed as truthful and good and powerful and wise, it brings him glory. And when Christ died on the cross, when he rose from the dead, when he sits at the right hand of the Father, when he sent the Holy Spirit, when he built his church, when he sanctifies his church and his bride, and he brings them to glory, God is praised. Just like Rahab acknowledged God's power and worshiped God, so too the lost will acknowledge Christ's power and worship him for his power in the church. When the world sees the church and it sees that it is united in the one who has all power and all wisdom and is in the name above all names, they will come to worship Christ. Obviously, some will not worship, but some will. The last point is this. The Son exalts his church into his likeness. The Son exalts his church into his likeness. Paul is kind of in building this up throughout this book. Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers may become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is talking about this future glory. That's where his hope is. And he keeps talking about this. He says this in verse 21, chapter 1. He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can you say that unless there's some hope of exaltation in the future? He says this in chapter 3, verse 11. That by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 8 of chapter 3, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. How can Paul say these things unless there's a future exaltation? How can he say these things? It makes no sense if he's imprisoned. And he's bringing hope to other believers. How can he even talk about hope when he's imprisoned, when, when death is, is threatened on him? How can he talk about exhortation and hope? So he talks about humility in chapter 2. In humility, come others more important than yourself. Look to the interests of others. Behold Christ's example. Imitate his model. But also be empowered by his exaltation. Be empowered by Christ's exaltation. Behold Christ Jesus who took on flesh, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who has power above all. Bow to him and confess him as Lord. That takes humility. And then hope 
as he says in chapter 3, 20 through 21, hope in your exaltation. Our citizenship is in heaven. Wait a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name is above all names, who will transform, exalt our lowly bodies, our humiliated bodies, to be like his glorious body by the same power. This is all to show that Christ has all power, and those who are in Christ will also receive the same power. So when he talks about exhorting you to be humble, you cannot be humble outside of Christ. When you're in Christ, you will then be conformed to his likeness, and therefore will be exalted to be like Christ. Christ's humiliation and exaltation leads to our exaltation. He came to exalt his church. If Christ never came and he never died, we would never have the hope of exaltation. But because Christ came, because he didn't assert his own privilege and advantage, because he died, because he rose from the dead, we now have the hope of exaltation. He came to exalt his church, his bride. Therefore, you have no need to boast or to assert your rights to independently elevate yourself as God. You don't have to do that anymore. Christ has already done it. You don't have to be like Adam and take the fruit. You don't have to be like God. You're in Christ. Therefore, you're like God. You're exalted in Christ. You're empowered in Christ. Christ exalts his into his likeness by humility, beholding, bowing, and confessing. To be exalted in Christ, we must humble ourselves, behold his glory, bow before his name, and then confess him as Lord. Christ responds by exalting his church. When we humble ourselves, when we behold him, we bow, we confess, he exalts us. He responds with exaltation in our lives. Nothing to prove, nothing to boast about. Empowered in Christ to live humbly and joyfully in the reality that Christ is Lord of all. We don't have to prove anything anymore. You don't have to boast in your resume anymore. You are in Christ. You will be exalted. Stop trying to be like God outside of Christ. Stop. <coughs> you should preserve, you should uh, persevere in love, humility, and gentleness, knowing that your exaltation is coming. So in marriage, in as parents, as, as employees, wherever you are, you can show humility. You can show uh, uh, love and gentleness because you have your hope in the future, in your future exaltation. No, no longer having to prove to anyone how great you are, how good you are. Last thing I want to say is what you believe about Christ is the most important thing about you. There's a Babylon B. I don't know if you're familiar with Babylon B, but it's like this um, a humorous Christian uh, website that gets a lot of things get on Facebook. But there was one that came up like the last few days that said, local family attending church on Easter just in case God is real. And basically the way it goes is like they, this family had gone to church every Easter for five years in a row. Just in case God was real, they would have some points when they get to heaven. Uh, and so basically it was a standard risk-reward analysis that we'll just go every Easter and a few Christmases and we'll pretty much hope that if God is real, we'll be good. It's funny. A lot of people do believe that, don't they? They'll go to all the church a few different times, just in case this Jesus thing is real. I'm going to kind of hedge my bets a little bit and hope that that's good enough. 
The view of Christ is so low around Easter time, right? I mean, Jesus is like an example. Of, oh, he died on the cross. How wonderful. What a great example of love and compassion. That's fantastic. That's about all you can get from Jesus. That's about all you can muster or squeeze out of Christianity or Jesus. This is really the start of liberal theology that started in the 19th century with the life of Jesus, the historical Jesus thing. And basically what came out of this is that Jesus is just an, exec an ethical example to follow. The miracles never happened. The resurrection never happened. It's all just fantasy and fake and myth. Just learn the things that make you a better person. That's the point of Jesus. Yet Jesus is more than an ethical example. He has been raised from the dead, exalted above all others, empowering his church into his likeness. When you think about all the responsibilities in your life, those who have humbled themselves but holding Christ, bowed and confessed his name, you are empowered by Christ to live with the divine nature. Jesus is far more than an ethical example. Like he rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, that's the power that lives inside of those who worship him and believe in his name. There's far more to gain than just an ethical example. Parents, husbands and wives, friends, employees and employers, if you're in Christ, you have the power of Christ in you. This is the impact of Christ's exaltation in your life. Have this mind amongst you which is yours in Christ Jesus. The resurrection is more than just Easter and Easter bunnies and candy and eggs. It's more than just an empty tomb. The tomb is fantastic. The tomb is great. But what it does to you, the exaltation in your actual life is unbelievable. And the way that we think about our lives should be far more impacted. Far more impacted. When we think about our sins, when we struggle with our sins, put your hope in the understanding that you're in the one who's been given the name above all names who sits on a throne who's been given all power and glory and wisdom, who is Yahweh the Lord. That's the one who lives inside of you. So relax and trust in God. Worship Him and be empowered in your life. Show humility to those that you're around you. Show love to them. Show gentleness to them. Knowing that your hope is in your exaltation. Not in what people think about you. Not in certain rights that you think you have. Stop with the asserting yourself. Try, stop trying to independently make yourself like God. You are, you are like God in Christ. And trust that. And put your trust and belief in that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the empty, the empty tomb, Lord. When I think about my own sin that I struggle with daily, Lord, the impact that the tomb has on that is unbelievable. When I think about the things that I struggle with, the things that bring me to tears and, and remorse and sorrow, Lord, when I know that I am in Christ, the one who has been given all power and glory, who's been given a name above all names, what do I have to fear? What right do I think I need to assert of myself? What, what boasting do I need to have in myself? I just need to rest, rest and trust in Christ. And for anyone here, Lord, who does not have Christ, Lord, may you give them this power. May you give them clarity and understanding of the gospel. Easter is far more than just Jesus is raised from the dead. He builds his church. He builds his bride. He sanctifies and sets apart 
his bride and makes them holy. He empowers them through his word. He empowers them through his Holy Spirit. He gives them strength in the inner man. This is the result of our faith. And I pray, Lord, that people would see that and trust in Christ. For fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling in sin, may they trust in the power of Christ. May they look to Christ. May they be blanketed by his grace and his love. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to take the, a communion. If I can get a Denton, why don't you come up and uh, Sean, and we're going to get away with you a little bit. Uh, we take communion every week here at Redeemer. Um, it's a way that we bring us all the way back to the cross every week. Um, in the cross, we uh, have our uh, forgiveness.